Well, as we gather on this Easter morning, uh, everyone dressed up and looking nice, uh, we tend to shelve uh, some of the things that we would normally uh, maybe discuss or have in our minds, but there are plenty of things to be worried about uh, this Easter morning, in case you've forgotten. Uh, there are wars currently uh, taking place. Uh, there's inflation, which I'm sure you have felt uh, even yesterday when you went to fill up for gas. Uh, there's some national disarray. There's definitely moral decay. I mean, not to mention the things going on inside the walls of your own homes that maybe we don't speak about quite as often or loudly. Broken relationships, broken hearts, broken bodies, broken minds, and, and even more besides. And with all of those things, we surely want help. We want things to be better. We want things to be solved. And even if we don't know the way out, we all want hope, something to place our hope in. So the question, of course, is where do we go for that hope? Where do we look for those kind of answers? I mean, how do we get our happily ever after anyway that we all so desperately desire? Well, I want us to see this morning under a few headings the answer to that question. The first thing I want us to see is that we all do want a happy ending. The psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 16, maybe you noticed it is the psalm that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost when he's speaking about Christ's resurrection. Uh, and in that way, uh, it is an Easter psalm. Uh, but even more, it's a psalm of optimism. Uh, hopefully you felt the tenor of that. It's a psalm that surely has a pretty profound happy ending, at least at first blush. Uh, I mean, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Uh, that's a good line. I, mean, uh, I wish I could say that about every single thing in my life. I will never be shaken. My flesh shall, be, shall dwell secure, David says. You won't abandon me. You won't let me see corruption. And of course, it ends with fullness of joy and pleasures that never end, according to the psalmist. And this is the kind of psalm we like. These are the ones that we quote, uh, we pin up on our fridge, uh, things that we memorize. This is the kind of story that we love. Uh, not only do we love, you know, the stories with this kind of grand happy ending when we see them on the big screen or we read about them in novels. This is the kind of story that we want for our own life. We want things to end well, to be well. We want everything to be okay. And the psalmist, at least according to the psalm, seems to have landed on it here. Uh, he has put his trust in the Lord, and everything seems to be working out swimmingly. I mean, everything is falling out pleasantly. Or is it? I mean, second thing I think we should see in this psalm is that in one sense we all have the same lot. Notice how the psalm begins. Preserve me, O God, because I have run to hide in you. I mean, why does one flee unless they're being chased? And why does one need to hide and take refuge unless the one chasing, of course, seeks to do some manner of evil or ill to you? The psalmist is in a bad way at the beginning of this psalm. There's something that has gone awry in his life, and there's an enemy that is currently in hot pursuit. And so he says, Lord, I have put myself in your hands. I've placed my trust in you. But the text also ends in death. He says, you won't abandon me in the grave. You won't leave me there. But that's where he goes. I mean, he is going 
to his own death. What our text reads as Sheol or Hades, the, the common grave. But of course, this psalm we learn is not really about David. Peter tells us even David knew, or at least David was speaking about the Christ, not about himself. Of Jesus, it could be said with certainty, he put his trust in God. He really could say without flinching or winking that the Lord is my portion, my cup, my lot. Something that David could surely say, but some of his actions might not fully reflect. And therefore, we should be able to say of Jesus that the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places, and he has pleasure forevermore. Well, well, not exactly, in the sense that we come here on an Easter morning, reading this Easter text, uh, and learning that this psalm is about Jesus, God's own Son. I mean, consider the last week's tragic storyline for this faithful Son of God, who has always made the Lord his portion, who has always followed and put his trust in him. I mean, after his kingly procession on Palm Sunday, we go from there to a betrayal, and at that betrayal, a desertion of all of his closest friends and compatriots to an unjust sentencing before a somewhat kangaroo court until finally he is shamefully exposed to the watching world and executed in one of the most humiliating as well as painful fashions that history has known. All to be culminated with a divine, a divine forsaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, all hope is slowly stripped uh, to the storyline of happily ever after for Jesus because he's put his trust in God as we go down this road toward the cross. Everything that we thought would come from one who obeyed God, who loved God, who was God's own beloved, his son, seems to fall a little flat when you consider Good Friday, and all that happened to our Savior. And of course, that is what makes life so difficult. It's not always a series of blessings. Even the best life lived doesn't come with lines drawn always in pleasant places. I doubt Jesus would say of that moment on the cross, this is just what he was desiring. I mean, life is hard. You we say that, and that even feels like a drastic understatement sometimes. I mean, that language isn't even sufficient for the things that come into our daily experience. I mean, is it, is it enough to say life is hard after several miscarriages? Or after you've witnessed the death of a loved one? Or the doctor somewhat sterilely says to you, it's cancer? Or when your children break your heart, or your your spouse disappoints. I mean, the hard news, even when life is going well, when blessings abound, is that we're all, even those who have the best of lives, are headed toward a graveyard. And sometimes the suffering we experience is stark and tragic and sudden, and sometimes it just feels like death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, Calvin said, life is no more than a constant death. And that is what he meant, is that it's a series of sufferings, that there are just trials that come 
and keep on coming. I mean, don't you ever uh, ask God, like, you know, when is the break coming? When is, when is the time of, you know, the lines falling in pleasant places going to come into my life? I mean, we live in a world full of bad news and a certain amount of despair and hopelessness. And many would say, and at one level would be right, that we would be fools to be optimists, especially in our time. And what makes our situation even more troubling is that sometimes our suffering uh, is our own doing. I mean, we cause our own misery. Uh, it's one thing at times to be able to take suffering that comes from the outside. Well, what could I do about it? You know, I've been diagnosed with this disease or this tragic accident happened. But when you're looking at your life uh, in the ruins and you realize, I did that. That was a choice that I made. My family's broken because of something I did. Or, you know, I've lost my employment because of decisions that I made along the way. I reacted harshly and destroyed a relationship. Or I acted rashly. And the long-term consequences of a momentary action are just all too overwhelming. Or maybe we failed to act and it cost us plenty. We can feel like Frodo when he told Sam, but it's like things are in the world. Hope fails, and the end comes, and we are lost in ruin and downfall, and there just is no escape. So how in the world does the psalmist say, it's all pleasant for me, while also running for a hiding place? How does he say it's all joy, even if this psalm is headed for a tomb? And how do we say it all the more, knowing that the psalmist was really talking about Jesus, and it doesn't look like it was all good or pleasant, or that life came without any kind of suffering or hardship? Well, we see it in this final thing we want to look at this morning, which is God's way of blessing. I mean, how does the good news of this psalm come to pass? There are hints in the psalm for sure. He says, you know, I won't let my Holy One see corruption. Or God will show me the path of life. Or there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand or in your presence is the fullness of joy. But even Peter says that didn't happen for David. The one who wrote this psalm, Peter says, I mean, I could take you down the road. His tomb's right over there and... His bones are still within it. That David did see corruption. He did die. His hopes did come, at least at one level, to an end. So how does this psalm make sense? Well, we're here on Easter morning, so we know it makes sense because of Jesus. <laughs> at least loosely we know that's the answer, right? I mean, well, Jesus fulfills this psalm. But even then, we've seen Jesus' suffering. We hardly can think... That those are pleasant places. Pleasant places or lines drawn in pleasant places usually don't end in a crucifixion. But of course that really is the key to Easter, but not only to Easter, but to the whole of our Christian life. If you're going to understand God at all, and your life in God, you must understand this about his way of working in this world. That God's triumphs, his victory, his way of securing and giving blessing are almost always dressed up as disasters. Which may mean you're right in the midst of a blessing right now. It just doesn't feel like it. I mean, think about that. The horrors of Good Friday 
have become for us the best news that we've ever heard. But to the naked eye, that is surely not what it looks like. The death of Christ has become for us the very path of life, though that seems like such an enigma when you see a crucified Messiah. I mean, in the resurrection, God promises to us that all that we think we see and know as suffering and evil, even those things are somehow serving his plan, something better. Even our sin, even your worst sin, are serving the purpose of bringing you, his people, eternal joy. That may sound like heresy, so let me clarify. (laughs) Notice what Peter says in this text, that Jesus was crucified by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And he says, and your lawless hands took him and put him to death. And then he ends by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. So even the evil actions of the Jewish people and Rome during that time, God says, that was all part of my plan to bring about the best end that could have been given to sinners as part of this current world. Again, it reminds us, we'll try to stay on one theme here, of the end of the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is visiting Samwise. uh, He asks him, well, Samwise, how do you feel? And Sam says he's laid back and he stared with his open mouth. And he thought for a moment. It was between bewilderment and great joy and he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to become untrue? And if you look at your life and ask that question, can you imagine the answer coming back in the affirmative? That everything that you experience in this present age that is suffering, that is hardship, all the things that are breaking your heart, can you say in faith that even the sad things will all become untrue? Well, you can't imagine that. You couldn't have imagined a resurrection either. I mean, the disciples who even were told about it couldn't imagine it. Even the disciples who saw it couldn't believe it. This is the true comfort of the Christian faith, because waiting for the mending of this mad world, or looking with any kind of realism at our own feeble and shattered lives, that brings no hope at all. I mean, there's a reason to be a pessimist if that is all that we're banking on. But instead, we're banking on the God of the resurrection. A God who does his best work through the worst of things. I mean, the bottom line is resurrections are for the dead. For the numb and the hopeless and the helpless. Not the kind who need just a little help from their friends to get by, but for those who have no friends at all and the ones they have had, they've burned along the way. Resurrections are needed for those kind of people. Nothing else will do. 
And of course, we can gather on Easter Sunday uh, and experience joy of all sorts. But lest we experience somewhat of the cheap joy of, you know, just the pastel Easter and all that comes with it, you know, chocolates, which are good, uh, and parties, which are also good. We need more than that. Those aren't sufficient to give us hope in the midst of the world that's broken, in the midst of a life that's broken. We need the deep joy of Easter. Hope in the midst of a world that is filled with tears. And Paul says that the resurrection is of such importance that it's so foundational what it means to be a Christian that he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ is not raised, he says, we're to be pitied more than all men. And he says, the reason that's true, he says, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say this, well, even if Christianity is not true, you know, what's the harm in it? We, we lived a good life. And Paul says, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He says, if the resurrection's not true, you might as well get all you can now, because this is it. He says, but because the resurrection is true, while at one level, if it's not true, you should eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die, he says, at another level, you are given back life and life after that, in this sense, that we are really called to eat, drink, and be merry, but not because we have no hope in this world, but because tomorrow we live. And this is what I mean when I say that. The bad thing has already happened. Whatever you're imagining the worst thing in your life to be or could be, or maybe you're experiencing it now, or maybe it's behind you, that thing that has haunted you because it's either broken your heart or because you have done something you can't get over and the shame is killing you. The worst thing that could have happened to you has already happened on Good Friday. That God's payment for your sins has already been given on the cross at Calvary. That the death that you await has already transpired in the death of Christ and the life that you should have lived has already been lived in the life of Christ. And since the bad thing has already happened, today we come to celebrate the outcome of that thing, the resurrection, the fact that Christ stepped out of the tomb three days later. Thus, in the midst of your stuff, whatever it may be, you have every right to hope if you're a Christian. And yet hope is not because it's all magically going to get better. Not because Psalm 16 is going to mean that the lines fall for you in pleasant places means all your problems somehow vanish. Or because tomorrow somehow politicians will all grow honest and noble. Or because your money problems will disappear or your sin issues will somehow all be resolved. No matter how much, or with all of your well-wishing. But rather because God is the God who works the good out of the ugly. He does the impossible when we feel there was no way out. As one author writes, we do not pretend that the fate of the world is in our hands. That way lies madness, being a burden that no human being can bear. Yet we are not condemned to resignation and quietism, still less to despair. We are not the lords of history. We do not control the outcome. 
But we have assurance that there is a Lord of history, and he controls its outcome. We need a theological interpretation of disaster, one that recognizes that God acts in such events as captivities, defeats, and crucifixions. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. Those events seem to say that not only that people and nations have failed, but that God has failed. Only the prophetic word that both explained historical events and provided assurances that God is the Lord of history could dispel the terror born by such an appearance. You see, the beauty of the resurrection is that it testifies to us that what looks by appearances to be God's worst work or his greatest failings or a way in which, uh, you know, we, we see the ugliness uh, of sin on display and God's justice. Through that action of the cross, he has brought salvation for us. And through the action of the resurrection, he has secured for us the reality that all really will be well. In the midst of the mess, because of the resurrection, you can confess All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. You see, we are going to party today, and we should. (laughs) And life is a mess. Both of those things are true. (laughs) And yet, because of the resurrection, we know how the story ends. We may not know how the next event turns out, or what our next struggle looks like, or what awaits us around the corner. But we know what the end looks like. And it is good. It is joy forevermore. Eternal pleasures at his right hand. It is a resurrection where we behold God face to face. And there's no more sorrow and no more tears. And no more sickness and no more death. And no more sin or failing. No more letting anyone else down. It is life forevermore. May we put our hope in the Christ of the resurrection this morning. Let us pray.